Welcome to Silicon Bytes edition seven. There's been quite a gap since the last episode and we have missed out on a lot of stories. Rather than trying to cover them all, I'm going to pick up some really sort of detailed stories uh, which you may have missed or details about those stories which you may have missed from the mainstream media. What we're also going to do is look at the Russian opposition, the divided Russian opposition, and their position around the whole topic of future Russia. What is going to be the structure of Russia's political system moving forward? What are the ideas and the visions that Russian oppositionists have? And why there is so little agreement between them? And why, of course, that is a real issue for a future democratic Russia? And why it's an issue for having a stable and sensible neighbour which Ukraine desperately needs on its border to cooperate with if it's to rebuild its economy and if Europe is not to expend a vast amount of money uh, on the military moving forward. So these stories are from a publication which many of you may not uh, necessarily look at from day to day, and it is the Moscow Times. Uh, despite many of the journalists still being based in the country, it manages to produce some incredibly high quality articles uh, and in-depth insights. It also covers a lot of aspects of day-to-day -day life, whether it be sort of exhibitions, protests, whatever, uh, that we don't tend to hear about on the news. So the first story here is about journalists jailed in Russia. And the trigger, of course, for this story is Evan Gershkovich. Um, the Wall Street Journal reporter uh, who is being prosecuted in Russia uh, under espionage um, laws. We believe this is, of course, entirely spurious. He is, in effect, a hostage of the Russian regime, potentially being held as a bargaining chip. Uh, who knows what for? Um, but this is very much the tactic of the Russian government now, uh, from quasi-legal to... Uh, complete sort of bandit-led uh, sort of government. But this story highlights the plight of many other journalists in Russia, and it says as many as 22 journalists are currently imprisoned right now in Russia for their work, according to data from International Press Freedom Organization, Reporters Without Borders, the RSF. This is the highest figure since the group began collecting data uh, a number of decades ago. And the number of journalists jailed is likely to increase, says the article, as Russia tightens draconian wartime censorship laws. And it also says that new reports of journalists being detained for their work emerge on an almost weekly basis. So for those who have remained behind and are continuing the practice of trying to be objective journalists, the risks have gone up significantly. And when it's framed in that way, it almost sounds accidental. But no, the price of honest journalism, the price of being an oppositionist, that price is placed by the Russian government. It's placed by the Siloviki. Um, and that is a strategy. It's not accidental at all. They want the costs of being in opposition to the war to escalate. And they want the benefits of acquiescing to the regime to be passive to what the regime wants to increase. So this is definitely a strategy adopted by the Russian government. And of course, in the front line, 
uh, journalists and oppositionists are the ones suffering from it. The next story is about Russia issuing digital military summons. Now, we know from the first round of conscription that that caused a huge exodus from the country. And not surprising, uh, who wants to end up uh, in the Russian government? At least any thinking person uh, who wants to save their own skin and their their family um, would not want to be conscripted into the Russian army. Um, And yes, we see videos of all sorts of people actually joining and signing up. But from living in Russia, many people will not have any illusions about what it's like to serve. Many people understand the hierarchical system of bullying, intimidation, threat and torture that goes on in the Russian army. Um, It will not be a surprise to most Russians. So this article goes into the detail about the digital summons that are being issued. So the authorities in several Russian regions have been distributing digital summons to men of call-up age, according to Russian media reports, less than a week after a radical overhaul of the country's military draft system was signed into law by President Vladimir Putin. So how is this different and why is it important? Well, previously, summons had to be issued in person. That made them relatively easy to evade. For instance, if you didn't live at the address where you're registered, or if you didn't go and live with your parents or so on, where your name was previously associated, but perhaps sort of, you know, camp out with friends, uh, go and live in an address which is not registered with the authorities, then um, you stood a good chance of not being found. And even if you were challenged, uh, it's quite bureaucratic and difficult uh, for them to take you in or prove who you are. They would have had to serve the actual summons in person um and 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 you know that that that's something you can't do uh if you're just randomly accosting someone on the street or the metro what's changed here is the scale and speed at which these summonses can be issued it also potentially changes the dynamic because if you have to physically issue a summons in person to an individual which is which is quite hard to do and yet you do it electronically, you no longer have to be present as the army recruitment officer. You can deliver that digital summons to someone without being physically present in the same place at the same time. What we suspect is that if that summons is sent, it no longer matters if you've received it or opened it or responded to it. The law assumes that that summons has been delivered. It means you are therefore in a form of contract. You are therefore liable to join up. And if you fail to do so, you start to be criminally culpable for failing to respond to the summons. And this was a different situation when they were delivered in person or they were written on pieces of paper. Now, many people through maybe naivety, still trusting the system, believing that they lived in a rules-based society, would go along to the military recruitment offices and they would try to challenge the legality of the summons that they'd been given. Video after video showed that that is a terrible idea because no one wants to hear about the legal nuances. No one wants to hear that you've got some kind of physical condition that prevents you from serving. You would be grabbed from that office and you would be taken along to the army. So. 
the key thing about this electronic summons is that definitely don't respond, definitely don't turn up to a recruitment office, but now you are automatically criminalized when that summons has been sent, whether you respond or not. And this has helped fuel the fears that the Kremlin might be preparing to mobilize many, many more men, potentially hundreds of thousands, to aid its failing military efforts in Ukraine. And the perniciousness of this is difficult, perhaps, to understand um, if you live in a, uh, let's say, a sort of, uh, if you live in a freer society. It's difficult to understand what the implications of this are for Russians. For instance, you will not be able to buy train tickets, either long haul or in some cases, possibly even local, without showing a form of ID. If you have ignored a digital summons, you will automatically be logged onto a system and anywhere that you show your ID, it will flag up that you are liable uh, to be serving and have evaded that. It means that you cannot access any government services, whether they're social security, health related, or any other kind of administrative processes without showing a form of ID. The implications are huge. And it also means that it's not just the ethnic minorities that are subject to this draft. It's potentially the case that this will be rolling out in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and the larger cities, targeting people who have up to now largely not borne the brunt of the conscription effort. Whether this works, we have to wait to see. Whether this is the final step that actually activates the Russian people to oppose Putin's government and his pointless war, again, we'll have to see what the impact of this law is and how it's enforced over the coming weeks and months. Another story which has not got as much traction as I thought it should do uh, is that the Kremlin pushed for a pro-Russian coalition in Germany. The Kremlin, uh, according to the Moscow Times, has attempted to sway German politicians to form an anti-war coalition as part of a broad strategy to weaken European backing for Ukraine, the Washington Post reported. Uh, most of these articles are from the last week. This one's from April the 21st. Citing documents dated between July and November last year that were obtained by an unidentified European intelligence service, the publication said that Kremlin Deputy Chief of Staff Sergei Kirienko had ordered Russian political strategists at a July 13th meeting to focus on Germany. And why focus on Germany? Clearly, Germany is seen as pivotal in the supply of weapons uh, to Ukraine, but it is also seen as a potential Achilles heel, a potential weak spot in the Western alliance. A 9th of September document spelled out plans for uniting Germany's far-left lawmaker, uh, Sahara uh, Wagenknecht, and the far-right alternative for Deutschland, uh, AFD party, under a common anti-war banner, uh, it was reported by the Washington Post. The new coalition was intended to win a majority in elections at any level. So not only is this important, important to fight Russian disinformation, fight Russian active measures and meddling in our political systems, 
it is also crucial to understand that Russia is, in terms of its uh, GRU and, and, and foreign security services, they do not have a moral point of view. They do not have some idea or framework they want to convince us of. They simply want to project power and they simply want us to be disorganized and divided and stop supporting Ukraine. The idea of supporting the far right and the far left and bringing them together in some kind of unholy alliance is an absolutely hideous and toxic idea. But for many people who've been watching the activity of trolls online and the kind of comments they make, even on this channel in relation to videos like this, we can see that that red-brown alliance is unfortunately still exists. Um, and whether it is organic or engineered or a mixture of both, it still represents a threat to freedom and the alliance that is supporting Ukraine. Another story here, which is quite a fascinating one, uh, which again uh, seems to have been passed up by many newspapers and uh, TV channels, is Russia replaces the Baltic and Pacific fleet commanders. Russia has appointed new commanders of both its Baltic and Pacific fleets, the state-run Interfax News Agency reported uh, on Friday, citing various sources. Admiral Viktor Lina, the former commander of Russia's Baltic fleet, will now head the country's Pacific fleet headquartered in the far east port of Vladivostok. The reshuffle coincides with the conclusion of surprise military drills in the Sea of Japan, the Sea of Okhotsk, and the Bering Sea, which were ordered by Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu last week. Well, I'm not a military expert or a naval expert. I'd love to be able to discuss this sort of topic from a military standpoint with someone like Anders Puck Nielsen, which hopefully we'll be doing on the channel uh, very soon. Um, but I think there's some interesting sort of subtext behind this, and that is um, the failure of Russia in the Black Sea, um, the sinking of the Moskva, uh, the failing to dominate that kind of environment, which has limited the scope of Russia's military operations, that must be giving Putin pause for thought about whether his other uh, forces around the world are actually you know, maintaining their vessels, maintaining their readiness in crucial areas around the world. It may also be that these maneuvers in some way are coordinated with China as part of the so-called unlimited partnership that China and Russia uh, supposedly have. But I think this story um, is one we should watch potentially uh, as events unfold. And lastly, two more stories uh, from the Moscow Times, and these are both really about Russian opposition. I've chosen these topics because the deep dive story uh, this week is going to be about the Russian opposition and Navalny. Well, this story here is freedom cannot be shut down, defiance as Russia's Sakharov Center holds its last public event. Now, for those who aren't familiar, the Sakharov Center is one of the centerpieces of Russian civil society. Um, and it's a result of Andrei Sakharov, uh, who, of course, is one of the most famous dissidents within the USSR, you know, extraordinary uh, sort of intellectual and authoritative figure uh, helped uh, bring an end actually to the Soviet Union and an intensely moral individual. Well, this center was, was created um, as a legacy 
to uh, the work he'd done. And it has just been forced under Putin's crackdown to close its doors. Human rights group the Sakharov Center held its final public event Sunday before closing down its premises in the center of the Russian capital as a result of an eviction order from the local authorities. What I'm feeling is a light sadness. Wonderful people have come here and it's a pleasure to see their faces and inspired eyes. Uh, Bachmin, a veteran human rights activist and chairman of the board of the Sakharov Center, told the Moscow Times. But at the same time, it's our last event. Now, this eviction comes amid a broad crackdown on dissent in Russia that has intensified massively since the invasion of Ukraine and seen an unprecedented level of pressure on independent journalists, human rights groups, and, of course, uh, opponents of the war. But it didn't start in February of last year. It was quite clear to many who were observing the uh, Russian media scene uh, and the acti uh, activities of uh, opposition activists that actually this crackdown has been going on for years, but the deep intensification of it really started in 2021. Many leading oppositionists were forced out of the country or jailed or silenced to that point. And that's where the laws, uh, the foreign agent laws, really started to ramp up. And we've got some great episodes on the channel uh, about uh, the foreign agent laws and how the opposition in Russia have been muzzled and repressed. And the last story we're going to cover here really follows on from that. And it's about the uh, lawyer of jailed critic, uh, Vladimir Karamurza. And of course, many of the Western media sources have rightly focused on the plight of Karamurza. Um, leading figures like Bill Browder, again, who you can see on this channel in, in an excellent interview, um, have really fought hard uh, for the release of uh, Karamurza. He's clearly being terribly treated. Uh, and he's not a particularly well person after he was poisoned twice previously. Um, his health is certainly very shaky. But I think the part of this story, which really gets missed, is it's not just the oppositionists who are being persecuted. It's anyone associated with them, and including their lawyers uh, and anyone who works in any kind of you know administrative or support capacity are also being targeted by the regime. We saw that as well, of course, with um, Alexei uh, Navalny. The lawyer who defended Kremlin critic Vladimir Karamurza at his trial uh, that ended in a 25-year prison sentence this week told the Moscow Times he had fled Russia after receiving warnings that he too could be jailed. Vadim Prokhorov uh, has defended a string of prominent Kremlin critics in court over the years, including Karamurza, Ilya Yashin, and Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated in 2015. It was always clear that the Russian authorities were not pleased with me, Prokhorov said in a phone interview from Washington, but everything escalated with the Vladimir Karamurza case. And this tells us something about the direction of travel in Russia. As Putin's regime fails in Ukraine, as it gets increasingly paranoid uh, about its own future, and it sees dissent and threat where perhaps they don't exist in the intensity that Putin imagines, uh, he'll also be seeing threats from potentially oligarchs, potentially from supporters. We have to remember in the Russian system, you know, it's 
the elite is together only in so far as it helps them to rob the country, to fleece its citizenry and rape the country of resources. Anyone that threatens that process of thievery, like Karl Morzan, Navalny and others, of course are going to get targeted. But as the system becomes less and less capable of generating resources to plunder, generating resources to give to the Sylvia Key, the security forces, and those who defend the elite, as that money starts to run dry, then we're going to see a lot more paranoid behavior. We're going to see a lot more people being targeted. And that would include not just dissidents and oppositionists, but that would also include, I believe, members of the so-called elite as well, as it starts to consume itself in a kind of cannibalistic fashion. Well, this is part of the episode where we take a deep dive into a particular topic. And this one is going to be about Navalny. Despite being in prison, despite being subject to the most terrible psychological and physical torture where he's being held, nonetheless, Alexei Navalny is able to get some messages out to the outside world. And he's been able to put together a list or a program of 15 points which a future Russia should respect. It's almost like a sort of a, a policy program with a lot of uh, internal and foreign policy ideas in it. So I'm going to go through them one by one, and then we're going to look at some commentary on this from a relatively pro-Navalny Western source and from one which takes more of, I would say, the Ukrainian line of being highly critical of Russia's liberals. So let's start with them and uh, see how reasonable they are, but also see where perhaps some of the problems might lie with each point. So the first point Navalny makes, President Putin has unleashed an unjust war of aggression against Ukraine under ridiculous pretexts. That is fair and clear, and I like the unambiguous nature of the language here. Putin is desperately trying to make this a people's war, seeking to turn all Russian citizens into his accomplices, but his attempts are failing. This was written some time ago, and Valley points out here that there are almost no volunteers for the war, but this is a very hotly contested area, actually, and Ukrainians would argue that actually, no, this is a people's war. It may not be that 100% of Russians are behind it. In fact, we know many are not necessarily against the war, but they're certainly against fighting the war because more than a million have fled the country. So it's not exactly met with, with deeply passionate support. We also suspect that many in the so-called elites do not like the war and were shocked when it began, but that doesn't mean they oppose it. Many have looked for ways to keep their ill-gotten gains, keep their place in society, and potentially even profit from the situation, as opposed to resisting it on any kind of political or moral grounds. So it's not what you'd call a classical people's war, but there is enough indifference, there is enough apathy, there is enough cooperation, and there is enough within the population of actually active support, whether it be 10, 15, or 20%, there is enough active support to ensure that it continues. So on first, uh, Navalny's first point, that would appear perhaps to be wishful thinking. His second point, the real reasons for this war are the political and economic problems within Russia, Putin's desire to hold on to power at any cost, and his obsession with his own historical legacy. He wants to go in history as the conqueror czar, the collector 
of Russian lands. Well, this all rings true. I think all of these reasons can simultaneously be correct. Um, and I think they're pretty accurate. It has nothing to do with NATO. It has nothing to do with military, political or social threats to Russia from outside. It has everything to do with succession and with Putin's desire to hold on to power at any cost, to continue to enrich himself, to support the vertical system he's created that keeps him in power and allows him to plunder the country, and in isolation during COVID, and in talking to some of his more unhinged uh, advisors, it does seem that he has caught a kind of passion for, I wouldn't call it history, but the sort of weaponized mythology uh, of Russian imperialism. So the second point I think absolutely nails it. However, Navalny doesn't say how that is going to be undone, doesn't offer a practical series of steps of how you wind back from that. Um, it's quite clear that it's not Putin alone who has a an obsession with history. It's not Putin alone who likes the idea of gathering Russian lands. It's not Putin alone who likes the idea of a big Russia, a vast country, which is continuing to grow and expand and absorb other territories. This is an idea which many Russians would actively support. It's an idea that many would passively acquiesce to. The problem, of course, is that Russia is failing in the war. If it wasn't failing, I believe we would see far, far fewer Russians taking any kind of exception to the idea of imperial conquest. Navalny's third point, tens of thousands of innocent Ukrainians have been murdered and the pain and suffering befallen millions more. Crimes have been committed, Ukrainian infrastructure and cities have been destroyed. Absolutely true, completely, 100%. Uh, and of course, you get a sense through Navalny's words of moral outrage, which is absolutely correct. Uh, and I think he genuinely would not have started this war had he been in power. He genuinely does not support it and um, sees no benefit uh, to Russia from it. But again, what are the practical steps? And this is where it is less clear what Navalny would do. Would he withdraw to the 1991 borders? Would he give Crimea back? Would he pay reparations? How would that work? How would he sell that to the Russian people? There are a lot of practical problems in how you actually put this moral outrage and code it into policy. The fourth point, Russia is suffering a military defeat. It was the realization of this fact that changed the rhetoric of the authorities from claims that Kiev will fall in three days to hysterical threats of using nuclear weapons should Russia lose. Tens of thousands of lives of Russian soldiers have been needlessly ruined. And ultimately, military defeat is only being delayed uh, rather than prevented at the cost of hundreds of thousands of mobilized soldiers. But defeat is inevitable. Not for Navalny, a Russian defeat. And for many of the opposition, a defeat in this war is the only thing that offers them a chance of being released from prison or having any kind of political agency within the country. Because unless Putin loses spectacularly, his regime, his system, his vertical, all the sycophants and criminals that support that system will remain in place. And very few of them, I think, will be minded to release Navalny, unless, of course, that is one of the conditions of 
a peace settlement between Russia, Ukraine, and the West. Fifth point, what are Ukraine's borders? They are similar to Russia's. They're internationally recognized and defined in 1991. Russia also recognized these borders back then. It must recognize them today. Now, this is quite a change uh, in Navalny's point of view, because previously he's really fudged this. He's even, if you go back a number of years, said that, well, you know, we, we can't hand Crimea back now and blah, blah, blah. It's complicated. He has changed his point of view and he's done it under significant pressure, uh, not from within Russia, I don't believe, but uh, certainly from those uh, sort of Western, from those Western governments arguing his case and from all the activists in the West who do vocally support him. So that's, a, on the face of it, a fairly unambiguous statement. Restore the 1991 borders. But there's also some subtlety here, because before the full-scale invasion, there was the incursion of agents and assets into Ukraine. There was the GRU penetration of the country. There were active measures designed to corrupt the Ukrainian political system, to coerce it, to control it to try and control the media to some extent, work through the oligarchs and the oligarchical system, to use corruption and nepotism to Moscow's advantage to destabilize Ukraine. I hope in future Navalny will have the opportunity to put a lot more detail in here, because it's not just about withdrawing armies, it's about withdrawing the entire infrastructure of influence and coercion that Russia projects not just onto Ukraine, but onto all the neighboring states uh, of the former Soviet territories and still tries to project into countries uh, like Poland, Hungary, and those that are within its so-called near abroad. Navalny's sixth point, Russia must leave Ukraine alone and allow, allow it to develop the way its people want. Stop the aggression, end the war, and withdraw all of its troops from Ukraine. Continuation of this war is just a tantrum caused by a powerlessness and putting an end to it would be a strong move. Again, that's a deeply idealistic statement. Now, Navalny knows none of that is going to happen. Navalny knows that that is not who Putin and his acolytes are. So this statement, clear though it is, is entirely dependent on Putin's regime falling and being replaced by something else. Seven. Together with Ukraine, the US, the EU, the UK, we must look for acceptable ways to compensate for the damage done to Ukraine. He does actually propose here one practical measure, which would be lifting restrictions imposed on oil and gas, but directing part of that income uh, from the export of hydrocarbons towards reparations. This is entirely contingent, he says, on there being a change of power in Russia and an end to the war. And I think that isn't and I think that is a, not a bad idea, but a lot has to happen before something like that can uh, be put in place. Russia would have to admit its culpability for the crimes of aggression. It would have to admit to the thousands upon thousands of individual crimes. Um, and it would have to make not just monetary reparations, it would have to recognize the genocidal aggression that it has engaged with. And these are all big, big asks. Those moves would be deeply unpopular. The only way denazification was possible in Germany, and that took place after, over several generations, was that the country was fully occupied and it was destroyed 
down to its foundations in some instances in the large cities. This won't be the case in Russia. So whoever is seeking to completely change the mindset, the educational system, change the culture uh, to one of culpability rather than aggression, has really got their work cut out because at the moment, the entire infrastructure of the media and society is really not designed to take on board the guilt and atonement that would be required for what Navalny is outlining here. Point eight, war crimes committed during the war must be investigated in cooperation with international institutions. Why would stopping Putin's aggression benefit Russia? Well, this is this is a good point here. Um, this implies that Russia would cooperate, and that means handing over indicted war suspects. That, again, would only be possible if there was a radical change of power and change of system in Russia itself. Point nine, are all Russians inherently imperialistic? Navalny says this is nonsense. For example, Belarus is also involved in the war against Ukraine. Uh, I mean, that is a deeply disingenuous point. Um, Belarus is a country that is essentially a remote control device of Russia. It is fully coerced, controlled by uh, Putin's regime. Lukashenko is only hanging on due to Putin's power, influence, his army, secret police, and propagandists that were bust in to help shore up Belarus. So this is an entirely uh, specious point. Does this mean that Belarusians also have an imperial mindset? No, they merely have a dictator in power. This is the worrying bit. This is the paragraph I think that, that many Ukrainians will fear here, because it does not grapple with Russian imperialism in any sense, or should I say Muscovite imperialism. Belarus is one of the colonized countries. They are the victim, as it were, of centuries of Russian occupation and domination. Their native language is practically on the point of extinction, and their country has been uh, controlled uh, into, into, into being you know, a basket case of, of Europe um, because of Russian influence and the imposition of the dictator Lukashenko in that society. You cannot equate the colonized with the colonist. Anyone who's studied British imperial history will know that, uh, that this is an absolutely sort of absurd point of view. And as Britain did in the 1950s, coming to grips with imperialism means acknowledging the bad things that have happened and putting in place a specific process to decolonize, to create a new relationship with those countries where it was previously one of coercion, control, and essentially uh, parasitism. Now, Britain did that successfully in some cases, less successfully in others, but there was the impulse there to create a new politics and a new relationship with the world. There is no sign at all, I believe, in, in Russia, either in the mainstream uh, of those in charge, and it's quite patchy amongst the opposition in actually acknowledging the malign influence of empire and how long that stretches back into history. And unfortunately, there is no practical program of steps laid out in Navalny's thesis that actually addresses that problem. Point 10, does Russia need new territories? Russia is a, Russia is a vast country with a shrinking population and dying out rural areas. 
Imperialism and the urge to seize territory is the most harmful and destructive path. Absolutely true. Putin's genocide is not just against Ukrainians. He has been extracting resources from the country, from areas where uh, you have non-Russian ethnic uh, minorities. Um, they've been treated appallingly, even though resources, materials come from their territories, they are often entirely impoverished, and many will live in appalling uh, conditions. They'll benefit in no way from being part of an empire. Um, even many ethnic Russians receive very little benefit from being part of this imperial uh, machine. But again, I think Navalny fails to recognize that even if you stop the desire for expansion, even if you pause the desire to influence these states in the near abroad, Russia is still a vast territory uh, that is made up by dozens and dozens and dozens of colonized people, nationalities that were conquered uh, during the 18th and 19th centuries uh, by um, ethnic Russians, and in many cases, whose cultures uh, and uh, unique identities have been repressed and wiped out. And Navalny doesn't address any of this. You know, he's looking at Russia as if it's one homogenous entity, and you sort of put the brakes on, as it were. Well, that opens the door to a future ruler to lift the brakes and press on the accelerator once again for uh, imperial expansion. What you need here is a plan that deals with Russia as it is, which is a vast patchwork of conquered territories and repressed peoples. Point 11, for Russia, the legacy of this war will be a whole tangle of complex and at first glance almost unsolvable problems. It's important to establish for ourselves that we really want to solve them and then begin to do so honestly and openly. The key to success lies in understanding the end of the war as soon as possible will not only be good for Russia and its people, but also very profitable. This is the only way to start progressing but towards removal of sanctions, blah, 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 blah. So this is great in principle, but it seems to hint at a resurrection of the status quo, or at least it provides no detail about what that post-Putin society would look like and what its detailed policies would be. And this is another part of the problem. Unless there is fundamental systemic change in Russia that doesn't come from the top down, but rather comes from the bottom up, that change will be neither permanent, nor will its impact be particularly deep within society. Point number 12, let me re-emphasize that after the war, we will have to reimburse Ukraine for all the damage caused by Putin's aggression. The restoration of normal economic relations with the civilized world and the return of economic growth will allow us to do so without interfering with the development of the country. Again, this is an extraordinary naive point of view. The idea that we would apportion blame for the destruction and criminality in Ukraine, for the acts of genocidal behavior we see, and that we would say, oh, no, that was just one or two individuals in Russia. You know, let's let the rest of society off. Let's, uh, you know, that was kind of different. That trick worked when the Soviet Union collapsed. Russia was able to say, well, no, that wasn't us. That was the Soviet Union. We didn't do any of that stuff. You know, that's, uh, you know, we had no choice in the matter. We were enslaved too, et cetera, et cetera. That excuse will not wash this time because hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Russians have directly taken part in this, whether it is actually the slaughter in Ukraine 
or firing missiles, etc., from a distance, or whether it is supporting the propagandist media or supporting the economy. There are hundreds of thousands of Russians culpable for the morally reprehensible crimes of the regime. So Russia will not just be let back in to the club of civilized nations. We will not simply start trading with them again unless there is fundamental reform to the system. And if any governments in the West attempt to do that, then we need to fight them as well. Because the perpetrators of these crimes should not be let off the hook. The idea that Russia can return to the kind of status quo, the business as usual that is observed really since 2000, uh, or even in the 90s, conducting its economic and social business in the way it has, is simply not sustainable. It would lead to another war and another and another, because that is not a political system because its top-down political system, its vertical way of thinking, will inevitably lead to conflict generation after generation. Point 13, we need to dismantle the Putin regime and its dictatorship. Yes. Ideally, though, conducting general free elections and convocating the Constitutional Assembly. So, yes, going back to parliamentary democracy, removing Putin labeling him as enemy number one. This, unfortunately, I think is far too little detail, far too little strategic thinking about how to root out the propagandist media, to hold to account everyone who worked within that, who supported the regime. That includes cultural figures, singers, etc. Again, hundreds of thousands of people who are, are being entirely involved in enabling crimes of this regime. It doesn't really deal with how you, you tackle that. It doesn't tackle the Sylvia Key, the hundreds of thousands of secret police and agents who receive considerable monies from the state in order to uphold the status quo and to spy on Russians and repress them. How do you root that out? How do you deal with the KGB FSB, which is a uniquely evil uh, organization and unlike the Waffen-SS, which lasted for a couple of years uh, and then was defeated, the KGB has had decades and decades to put down roots in that society and create a system of deep uh, brainwashing of the people. How do you tackle that? Uh, very little mechanics in, in, in Navalny's points. 14, we need to establish a parliamentary republic based on the alternation of power through fair elections, independent courts, federalism, local self-governance, complete economic freedom and social justice. Yes, these are all good. Yes, they would help massively. How do you get there? We need a lot more detail from Navalny and his team about the steps that would need to be taken in order to achieve those objectives and how they would work in practice and how you prevent them from being corrupted because you can try and implement all this stuff in theory there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people right now in Russia who have made a decent living from corrupting the system or from creating their own sort of uh, their own rules to enrich themselves. These will not go away. They will look at whatever new system uh, Navalny or others try to impose on the country and they will try to uh, manipulate, influence and coerce that system to their own benefit. And finally, point 15, recognizing our history and traditions, we must be part of Europe and follow the European path of development. We have no choice 
uh, nor do we need any. And that's a direct rebuke to this whole idea of Eurasianism, that somehow Russia um, is half Asian, half European, and actually uh, its future lies in alliance with sort of China and the East. I think this is this is just a load of made up nonsense. Uh, to be honest, Russia is definitely aspires to be European. And I think, again, this is where Navalny, understandably, but misses the whole point. Russia aspires to be European insofar as it looks at the fruits of European and American civilization. That is, it looks at the material manifestation, the consumer goods, the luxuries, the lifestyles, how livable the cities are, things like that, architecture. It looks at important but superficial detail. What Russia does not try to do is understand the mechanics, the political and social mechanics that produce those luxuries, that produce those goods and those products and those lifestyles and infrastructures. There is very little attempt to understand how to recreate those mechanics within the Russian context. But again, make the mistake that everyone from Peter the Great onwards has made is try to reproduce the effect of Western civilization, Western industrial civilization, without looking at any of the political and social machinery that led to those and which drive that creation of wealth in uh, Western societies, in including you know, mechanics of the rule of law, civil society, and so on. So there's Navalny's 12 points. And we've pretty much run out of time on the Silicon Bytes, but there are two fascinating articles um, that look at uh, Navalny's uh, points and to an extent critique it. One is by Ronnie Greenfield in the Moscow Times, and this is from uh, March the 7th. And he says here that Navalny's policy shift on Crimea may be too little too late. So this is commenting on, on that part of the, uh, the treaties that I pulled out which is that Navalny has significantly clarified uh, his point of view on what should happen to a uh, Crimea uh, and, and obviously returning it to the 1991 borders. Navalny did lose uh, a lot of authority by fudging this question, and he lost the trust of most Ukrainians as well. The question is, can that be regained? I think at the moment, while he's languishing jail, that will be very difficult to achieve. Another article by Andres Umland, a research fellow at the Swedish Institute and who I've had the pleasure of interviewing twice. Uh, he gives quite a generous point of view uh, about uh, uh, Alexei. He does critique the 15 points and a full article which uh, Navalny wrote for the Washington Post. But he also makes the point that Navalny has suffered significantly um, and we mustn't gloss over the fact that he is almost certainly not one of Putin's puppet politicians. He's a, a genuine opposition in a country where that is quite a rarity. And he has been poisoned uh, and suffered significantly uh, for his, his protests. So that's an interesting and nuanced article. The second one, which I'm going to put a link to, is by Kate Surkin, and it's from the Kiev Independent. And she writes about the problems of lionizing Navalny uh, and the snub for Zelensky that we saw at the Oscars. Now, even though the article focuses on the attention of the Western media around the Oscars, it does examine many of the questions about why Ukrainians have such a problem 
with uh, Navalny and have such a problem with his program to reform Russia. And among those is, of course, the lack of detail, the lack of trust, the previous ambiguous attitude towards Crimea, uh, and general sort of lack of clarity about how Russia would atone for the war. Now, I think some of that has been cleared up, um, but also what Ukrainians distrust about Navalny is the attitude of benevolent naivety, perhaps, that underlie many of his policies and the lack of detail about how they would be implemented. What Ukrainians also distrust is not necessarily Navalny himself, but the idea that one, he would ever come to power, two, he would ever be allowed to implement these policies, and three, even if all of that happened, which is extraordinary, uh, low probability, that actually those changes would remain, that they would be permanent and they'd be transferred from one generation to another. Because the history of Russia shows that the imperial beast, the lust for territorial conquest, seems to rear up every generation and shows no signs of being consigned to the dustbin of history.